Hello, how are you? All well? Good. Good to have you with us. This is the Not The Top 20 podcast. This is the Monday pod and it is sponsored by Betfair. I am your returning host, Ali Maxwell. It's great to be back. Uh, I, I only missed one Monday pod, didn't I, to be honest. But uh, it was ably, dutifully presented by my great mate, George Ellick, who's here as well. Oh, mate, it's good to be back with you, I must say. Yeah. It is. I mean, I liked very much chatting to Matt Slater and Nick Doff in your absence, but there's no substitute for you. So welcome home. Wow. Genuine, genuine feels there. That's nice. That's nice to hear. Sometimes you don't realize what you've got until you go away on honeymoon for two weeks or get mm. left behind as your mate goes away on honeymoon for two weeks. How's all with you? And more specifically, uh, how's all with the little one? Well, good. Thank you. Yeah, she's still pretty great, which is exciting. It's a good thing for a daughter to be. <laughs> well, I'm yet to meet a piece of Eva Ellick WhatsApp content that I haven't loved, but in particular, the video of her dancing to Come On Eileen, which is in, in my opinion, in my strong opinion, the number one wedding song that exists. Come on, Eileen. Good to see that mm. she's got excellent taste as well. Um, two weeks in South Africa, you'd already done it. You told me it was really good. It is really good. It's really good. What was your favourite wine? <laughs> I liked all of the wine that I drank, basically, but particularly in one of the uh, vineyards of Franschuk. I must admit, though, I definitely ate and drank a lot of really good stuff, like meaty stuff, winey stuff, all good. What I'm feeling in my heart, having got home, is that is that the, the trip was about nature for me, which is a bit weird because mm. I'm not wouldn't bill myself as a big nature guy in general i'm a you know i'm a i'm a sports guy i'm a guy that spends a lot of time looking at screens watching sports looking at xg spreadsheets and stuff but like that's what i'll take away from south africa and from two weeks there nice firstly in and around cape town just insane terrain you wake up well we woke up in a, in our first hotel room and we could see table mountain like from the bed wasn't sure whether to what to expect really, but I can confirm it's more of a mountain than a table. Um, pretty amazing. The mountains all around Cape Town, the coastline as well. It's absolutely insane. And then up in the northeast, where we did a few days of safari up in the national parks, absolutely ridiculous. Like I've never even dreamed of going on safari before. I'm not someone that's ever been particularly obsessed with the animal kingdom, its hierarchies, its behaviors. Or anything like that. And now I'd say that might be my, my great passion in life. Might have overtaken the EFL. Just one of the most incredible few days of, of my life, basically, with my wow. lovely wife. Saw leopards. Like, didn't didn't know about leopards. Turns out they're basically like, they're the one. Leopards are the one. I'd have they thought, change their spots? Yeah, they can retract their claws as well, dependent on the situation, which is very important as a hunter. When you just said as a hunter, it sounded like you were talking about yourself. You know, that was important for me to find out as, as a hunter, you know, it was good to, to hear they could do that. Yeah, it's good. I mean, it's just good to have different options at your disposal as a hunter, which I've always known, but I didn't realize leopards were, were so well equipped. I kind of figured that lions would be like the main event, given that they are king of the jungle and did see some lions and they are absolutely awesome. But within that world, within safari, particularly in that part of the world, leopards are the ones that everyone goes mad for. Uh, and we saw one on my last day and that was, wow. That'll stay with me forever. Uh, baby rhino, probably my favorite thing that I saw. Baby rhinos, baby warthogs, probably the funniest things that exist on the earth. And also saw a pack of wild, <laughs> saw a pack of wild dogs eating an impala, just tearing it to shreds, which was hmm, 
an experience. It's one way to tame it. So there we go. Weird few weeks for the pod, but back to normal now. Good to be back. Big plans for 2023 as well. So watch this space, guys. Thank you for your patience while things have been a little bit different. A huge thanks to Matt Slater and to Nick Goff for, for stepping in over the last few weeks at different times. Um, the World Cup has been happening. That's also had an impact on EFL life, George. We spoke about who we were excited to see out of the 30 EFL players heading to Qatar. Now, let's not sugarcoat it. Not many of them have played that much. And they've all been knocked out already at the time of recording, apart from Big Ilias Chair and Smooth Anas Zaruri of Morocco, who neither of whom have, have played a single minute. They've all been knocked out. What have been the highlights in terms of EFL lads out in Qatar? I think there's been one very tall main highlight um, who has been Harry Souter uh, for Australia. Um, Australia knocked out, um, disappointingly for them, um, but did well, yeah, right? Like sort of overperformed expectation massively. I mean, that was that wasn't a criticism. I was going to say, but you know, in the group stages, they lost their opening game um, against France. You know, having taken the lead, they were well beaten. But the goal um, that put them ahead in that game was created from a split uh, Harry Suter ball from deep. Um, his performances over the whole group stage um uh, were praised by by pretty much everybody um, not only for his ball playing ability but his defensive ability as well his dominance in the air um and there were a couple of australia players who were getting rave reviews Aaron Moy Matthew Leckie um but Suter's stock has certainly risen um you know he got big praise from Gary Lineker and lots of the pundits on uh, on terrestrial tv and you know the whole story about his very, very bad knee injury, uh, his return from injury, the fact he'd only played 90 minutes um, for for Stoke in that 2-0 win over Luton before coming to the World Cup and basically coming into the side and slotting straight into centre-back and playing every minute of every game and doing so at such a high standard. I think, you know, even with the EFL um, tinted glasses off, uh, has been probably one of the stories in terms of players, one of the stories of the World Cup so far. Um, you know, we've had a lot of messages from Stoke fans um, talking about it and, uh, it's probably not ideal for Stoke, I would say, that their centre-back, who's had a long period of time out injured, has become something of a, you know, a niche household name. We know somewhere if you're if, if you're a household who've been paying attention to the World Cup, you, you probably didn't know who Harry Suter was why three that, weeks ago. Why, and is, now that, you, and why now is that bad for Stoke? Because I would say that he's now absolutely ripe for being one of those players that gets a big move off the back of the World Cup. Um that's I, not necessarily bad for Stoke. Selling players for lots of money is part of a, a well-balanced football maybe. club's life. I, it was it was more it was more the, the combination of not being able to um enjoy his ability for quite a long period of time and then probably maybe selling him with only a couple of more weeks down to the <laughs> January window. Uh, yeah. I'd be surprised if if there weren't at least um inquiries into him. But as you say, normally players who move off the back of a major tournament go for quite a lot of money and probably more than they're actually worth. So maybe in that sense it would be a good thing. So yeah, he was um, the best, I would say, in terms of, of other players. I mean, Ilman Jai, uh, we saw hooked at halftime against um, against England, uh, Ishmael Yassar, you know, two EFL boys going out there, um, thankfully. Sar <laughs> had a big impact in that third group game, didn't he? Big, big moment. Big impact. Win, winning the pen and scoring it. And also very nearly had a big impact by, by giving um, Senegal the lead last night against England, which would have been... Um, difficult to take uh, as well. Um, you know, Senegal were, in my mind, pretty disappointing um, in 
all of their games apart from the um apart from the Ecuador game where they mm. were they were very good. It was kind of a classic case, I guess, of Ecuador and Senegal going into what was a group stage knockout game, but with Ecuador kind of already one 0 up because the draw was was good enough for them. And, and I think that affected the way the game went, where Senegal were immediately at them and, and Ecuador couldn't really get a foothold in the game. Um but neither really impressing a great deal. Um Wales, obviously plenty of EFL uh, involvement with Wales, who I think Still like yeah. a surprisingly low proportion of them actually playing. Like, played, I know. Connor I know. Roberts and Joe Allen. And then a few bits well, neither really started off the bench. Well. Yeah, Colwell had a minute. Uh, there were a couple of others. But even that was, given the proportion of their squad yeah, from yeah. the EFL, it was like, yeah. Joe Allen came closest like for Wales to, to scoring against England. Uh, Connor Roberts came on when um, Necker Williams went off injured against England as well. But yeah, as you say, limited. And I thought Wales, apart from the second half against um, USA, were incredibly disappointing over the whole tournament. Frustration mm. for Wales, who've you know have, have been so great for the last decade or so. Maybe more EFL players should have played, mate, and then they'd have been <laughs> all right. You know, maybe, maybe Aaron Ramsey and Gareth Bale um, aren't quite as good as they used to be. Shock. Felt like, um, uh, although not of our parish anymore. Felt like Big Kiefer more. He sort of his stock rose a little, which is which is quite nice to see. Yeah. Um, given his, I was helped by, yeah, that game against USA where they started with Dan James up front and they they just couldn't get out at all, and then Rob Page brought on Kiefer for for James at half time and the game completely changed because suddenly the ball was sticking up front and and more showed that he's you know he's very capable of so many different aspects of centre forward play. Um, so yeah, I mean, but again, Kiefer's not ours anymore, is he? So. No, sadly not. Um, we've seen a bit of Bielik, a bit of Jewison Burnett, Costa Rica, bits of Baba Rahman and only 20 minutes of Antoine Semenyo. Uh, it's all been a little bit disappointing when viewing Hannibal the got booked on the bench, which was fun. <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> but a, that is... I think he threw, threw a ball at, at, at the, I can't remember who it was, taking the throw in. I mean, it was very him, just quite Larry. He's he has inserted himself right into my top five box office EFL players, and that that makes me very very happy. Um, so yeah, not actually a particularly fertile tournament, shall we say, for for EFL players out in Qatar. But uh, it's been a bit of fun anyway, and uh, and well done, Harry Suter, for impressing the Scotch Aussie. <laughs> um, and good luck to the Moroccans tomorrow. Maybe Big Ilias. And or smooth anas will will have an impact in in what would be one of the great shocks against Spain. Maybe not, given that neither of them has seen the field yet for Morocco. Uh, more news before we get into the weekend recap from the last two weeks, Georgia. I mean, let's start with Mick Beale to Rangers from Queens Park Rangers. I wasn't on my phone much in South Africa. I tried my best not to be. I didn't go on Twitter. I wasn't on NTT Twenty Squad, so I was I was missing those little bits and pieces of news that you just pick up during the course of a normal day without even realizing that you're gathering information and news. I did have the odd check of WhatsApp though every day, just in case of emergencies. Uh, and of all the news that basically you broke to me in the two weeks on those brief forays of phone time, the message saying. Mick Beals going to Rangers probably provoked one of the strongest reactions. Um, what, what, how, what, what happened? How's, when did that happen? What happened? What do you think? I mean, it happened over the course of about 10 days. It was quite a weird appointment where um, it seemed quite obvious that he was going to emerge at the top end of the market when Giovanni Van Bronckhorst left. Um, 
Rangers because of his history of, of being um, Stephen Gerrard's right-hand man. And, you know, we've heard a lot about how important he was to the Gerrard project. So it's it's not a surprise that Beale was very popular at Rangers with those making the decisions. But it, it felt like a kind of convenience um, rumour rather than necessarily anything that would, that would come to fruition. I don't think we have that many Scottish um, listeners, but please mute for the next 10 seconds, if you will. In my mind, the Wolves' job is a is, a, is a probably a more appealing job than the Rangers' job. I know that with Rangers, you get European football and, and you're and you know you are fighting for for titles. Um, but in terms of the you know the players you're going to work with and the the spending capacity and and, and probably the financial package um, to turn down Wolves and to take Rangers seems fairly unlikely, despite mm. the personal. Uh, you know affinity that he has with the club um and then you throw into the the mix the that interview that famous interview that he did having turned wolves down where he spoke about integrity and loyalty in my mind now um if i was you know a an owner or help make decisions at a championship club or a premier league club if i was a fan of of a club um and mick beale was being linked to my club after this um so opera then you'd probably be pretty uh put off by him because um so i just really think... enjoyed your use of soap opera there when talking about yeah Beale. well Beale. i mean that was deliberate anyone listened to the intro to, to last monday's pod will know that as well um it's yeah it is uh it, it's it's just his word doesn't really count for too much does it really um you know his performances at rangers will dictate the future of his managerial trajectory but um you don't have to give that interview you don't if you're if you're going to turn down a Premier League job and a Championship job you've just taken, you can just say it didn't feel right at the time. You do not have to make this song and dance of how important loyalty is and how you expect the same from your players and the rest of it. Um, it's disappointing because partly for his weird pronunciation of players' names, partly because of the good start that he had. Um, he was a player. He's a manager. Sorry that I was really excited and and was looking forward to seeing how it progressed. I do think. The one thing that we can say in his defence is that things at QPR had gone incredibly well to start the season. Um, and that was why he was on the radar of Premier League clubs. Since turning down the Wolves job, things have, have nosedived like catastrophically, where they've lost four of their last five games and one point from those five games as well. Mm. Uh, they've scored one goal in those five games. So it, to an extent, I guess Beal has to look at this and think to himself, right, well, do I do I put, take a punt on myself now and take this job fully in the knowledge that if things don't turn around in five, six, seven games, there's a chance that I might be struggling to get a championship job, let alone a Rangers job. Maybe, maybe. And, and, and I think we could probably accept that. But just in the in the wake of such public comments on the biggest stage, you've got to say, come on, mate. Like, you know, you can't... Um, you can't stand by your word for, for a couple of weeks and it's not really worth too much. It is a shame for me, just selfishly, because I liked watching his team. I thought he brought an, uh, some kind of interesting aspects tactically that most other managers in the championship don't do. I thought he was really committed to playing an aesthetically attractive brand of football with a lot of uh, technical players starting games and being given license to be creative and be technical. And I was enjoying watching it. Um, so it is a shame on that front. But I just find, I just it's just a reminder to me that some people love this stuff. I don't love it, as you know, that some of the most tedious and irrelevant bits of football discourse 
are when people are debating who has integrity and who doesn't have integrity, mm-hmm. why they have it, why they don't have it. But he hasn't helped himself at all by using that word specifically in that interview. Integrity is a real big thing for me and loyalty. He did not help himself there. And, and that's exactly what it is. I, I totally agree with you where too often fans get caught up on loyalty and you know analysing players' moves and pointing back to things they said in the past and the rest of it. And you just have to look at any um, decision that a player makes to leave a club where he's been a success, but it very rarely, rarely comes with um, the best wishes of the departing club's fans. But this is different because you know, he's made a rod for his own back. Um, anyway, we don't have to speak about Mick for a while, which is a shame. I mean, our, our, I feel like our campaign to get people to call him by his the way that he wanted to be called was successful. So um, he owes <laughs> us for that. What about the next step for QPR, George? Uh, they haven't appointed someone straight away. Uh, Paul Hall will be their interim manager. They've got that really tight core on the football side anyway, led by Les Ferdinand, Paul Hall being a part of that as well. They're not a club that I worry about necessarily lurching from manager to manager and being completely dependent on their success or failures. I do believe that they have established a pretty good, impressive footballing structure, which I think helps clubs when something like this happens. The the bookies' favourites at the moment are Neil Critchley, then Chris Wilder, then a bit of a leap to Anthony Barry, who I guess would be the most in the mould of Mick Beale as he is an incredibly highly rated young coach at Chelsea who has worked in the EFL before as a coach, will know a ton of people within the EFL and might be looking for an opportunity like this to break out on his own at some point. Uh, and then a really interesting name that I'd never seen or heard before, which is Marti Cifuentes, who mm. is a Spanish coach and who there's been some quite interesting reporting around him from Sweden, where he's currently managing Hammerby in the Alsvenskan. Uh, th- there's a Swedish journal whose name escapes me. He's apparently sort of their Fabrizio Romano who says that Cifuentes is having an interview with QPR early this week. So uh, that's certainly a name to look out for. Uh, what do you think about QPR's manager search? Yeah, I, I think any championship club that sacks the manager at the moment is probably going to have Critchley and Wilder at the top end of the betting markets. Um, off the back of that, I think it would be, you know, as, as much respect for, as I've got for Neil Critchley, it would be falling on his feet a bit to um, to get the QPR job, in my mind, at this stage. Um I think Wilder would be a, a very good appointment. I could see it happening. You know, I'm sure that he is looking to get a, you know, a, a job at a club um, with aspirations to get promoted to the Premier League as soon as possible. And uh, I'd be amazed if they aren't speaking to him. Um, but because of the the Beal appointment, you know, the likes of of Barry Cifuentes, it does feel like they are a club who are who back themselves to find value in the managerial pool uh, and not just get on board the merry the merry go round. So. My guess is that Wilder's probably got a shout because, you know, you can't, um, I mean, plenty do, but in my mind, you can't um, argue against his record um, in terms of being a, a a good appointment for the club. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, probably a name from left field. Maybe those we've already mentioned. Straight out of left field and straight into the Wigan Athletic dugout goes Colo Torre. <laughs> this is a bit of fun, isn't it? I mean, from our perspective, anyway, who knows how this is going to go? Uh, and I'm happy to say I have absolutely no idea. But Colo Torre <laughs> is the new manager of Leicester, uh, of Leicester City, of Wigan Athletic. He comes from Leicester City, where he's been the first team coach. He has had, from 
basically the last few years of his career at Celtic uh, and then the first few years of his post-playing career had a very close connection with Brendan Rodgers. So it'd be interesting if in January we might see a couple of uh, talented Leicester youngsters headed, heading to Wigan to try and sort of bolster their squad and add quality. Um, and he's brought in with him some very interesting backroom staff as well. George, do you want to pick up the pick up the story here? Well, Kevin Betsy is um, one of his assistants, uh, which it's it's hard to know what to make of that. You know, he's a, a, clearly a guy who was very highly thought of at Arsenal um, and then had a, a torrid start to his to his time at well to his managerial career um, at at Crawley, which hasn't really uh, aged particularly well um, either. So, yeah, he's not necessarily um well i mean it's, it's hard to say really he's clearly highly thought of coach so we'll see what happens there and then uh ashvir johal who's a, a former leicester academy coach who you assume tory has a relationship from them as well only 27 years old ask that training gown ground guru saying johal is the only asian coach working on a first team staff at a premier league or an efl club and one of the youngest Great. as well so really interesting appointment definitely i mean that that is good to to uh to hear and um, with with kodo Dore, it's it's quite a funny one because I actually think if you strip out the noise around Colo, you know, he had become something of a figure of fun on the pitch because of his, you know, he became fairly prone to to the odd moment of madness on the pitch. Um, but this is a guy who had an incredibly good career mm. at Premier League level, who played for three of the biggest clubs in Europe, in, in Manchester City, Liverpool and Arsenal, who has worked as a coach at two big clubs in Celtic and Leicester. He's aligned himself very closely to Brendan Rodgers, as you say, who is one of the, you know, exciting coaches in the UK, regardless of what's happened in the last 12 months over the course of his career. There is no reason in my mind why Colo Torre shouldn't be a really exciting appointment. Now we have no idea. I don't know about Colo's football intelligence I don't know about his tactical now or anything like that but in terms of attracting somebody who was a an eminently talented footballer with immense contacts within the game and who's done a, a pretty good um first few years kind of a, as a, an apprenticeship t- before his first appointment um I think it's it's a really exciting one I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm intrigued to see how he's going to get on and you know it, it might not work out but I think you know maybe that chant doesn't help. Maybe having a a, a younger brother who is um, you know certainly um, going to go down in, in history as being a better player than, than Colo maybe doesn't help either. But um, yeah, I think some of the the disrespect maybe is a bit strong. But I, I I think often it's it's easy to forget what what he's done in the game and and, and maybe how good he could be. Yeah, we're going to enjoy the ride certainly here. Interesting appointment from Wigan. They're they're in the relegation zone. That's what he walks into. Second worst goal difference in the league. They've struggled four goals in particular. Uh, they have a pretty small squad for the level. You'd say probably among the weakest as well on paper and in poor form. So they need a lift uh, and Torre goes away to Millwall for his first game in senior management. That's mm. pretty perfect, if you ask me. Uh, baptism of fire. Uh, lastly, we never really spoke about Rob Edwards being appointed Luton manager Uh to mm. replace Nathan Jones. Big shoes to fill, Nathan Jones. Uh, George Edwards, of course, having had 10 league games at Watford to start the season, uh, having won League Two with Forrest Green last season in his first full season as a senior manager in the EFL. Let's not forget that stint at Telford a few, <laughs> few years ago. Um, mm. only, only the second person in history to manage Watford and now their rivals, Luton, which is 
for me, of minor interest, but it's quite clear that no one involved on either side really cares about it too much. Uh, what do you make of Edwards being the one that Luton have turned to? Yeah, they don't care about it now, but it's going to be lively when the two teams meet again uh, later in the season. Um, yeah, obviously from a kind of manager profile um, personality level, it's chalk and cheese between um, Nathan Jones and Rob Edwards. In Jones, you've got this intense, um, abrasive, prickly bundle of energy. Uh, and in Edwards, you've got this pretty, um, you know, very media savvy, um, relaxed, composed guy. So like the, if you're looking at them from that extent, it's very, very different. The one thing I would say with both is they they both have a massive point to prove. And I think probably Edwards coming in from Watford, especially, um, makes that point even more pertinent where, you know, not only has he got to prove himself now as being worthwhile, to the rest of the footballing world. I'm sure he's going to want to show Watford that they made a mistake in in, in not persevering with their project with him. Um, And in terms of the football style, there are definitely similarities. It's not the same, but I do think that a squad that has been built for the way that Nathan Jones likes to play football is going to suit a Rob Edwards squad as well, where it's not particularly possession heavy. Uh, It is very much built on width and, and having playing two up top. Um, Edwards's biggest strength in my mind and we spoke about it a lot at the time is how he came into Forest Green and rather than an overhaul of the squad took players and took them to a completely different level in terms of their performance levels which is exactly what Nathan Jones has done very very well with good recruitment at, at Luton too so I think it makes sense stylistically um, You know, I certainly have a few more doubts in my mind now than I did 12 months ago as to whether as to Rob Edwards' managerial capabilities. Mm. Um, but having said that, it's a good job for him to come into where, you know, the expectations are quite high off the back of what Nathan Jones has done, but I still think there is an understanding of, of where their budget is and, and the size of their club. They are still punching above their weight. Um, so I'm, I'm excited and intrigued, intrigued to see how he's going to get on. Yeah, the personality clash is probably the one area where you're like, well, you know, Nathan Jones made... The Kenny, an incredibly um, intimidating place to go. Will Edwards be able to maintain that mm. um, type of intensity on the pitch? It feels like a nice fit for both parties. Uh, I think Edwards will be pleased. I think he used the word grateful, actually, in his interview to have got a top half championship job, as it is at the moment, having been shot out of the Watford cannon. You don't, you're never quite sure where you're going to land there. And I think Luton fans can be pleased to have hired someone who very clearly is highly thought of at the very least as a coach and as a developer of players and who seems to be, despite having lost his job pretty quickly at Watford, a pretty modern man manager as well. As you say, different style to Jones, we expect, but someone who, from what we've seen uh, in interviews, but you know, I've asked people who've worked with Edwards, is it all for the cameras? Is he really, is he actually that smooth? You know, And they all say, yeah, he is. That is genuine. It's not just... He knows how to work the media and he knows what to say in an interview. He is like that behind the scenes as well in the dressing room with the way that he deals with players. So that's good to hear, I think. And I think he's going to represent their club in a positive manner and be a good face of the club, you know, outside of results, which can always scupper things. But that's a good start. And and for him, the good thing is they are a, an unlikely fan base to trot out the tiresome, what's he actually proven at this level? Unproven. Because... 
Nathan Jones came to Luton having never managed at senior level before and leaves as as their best manager maybe ever certainly of the of this millennium so I think it's a good fit on those sorts of levels I'm optimistic tactically because I don't think it's a massive wrench away from the way that they played the one big difference in my eyes is intensity out of possession like Edwards built his Forest Green title winning team in a 3-5-2 formation similar to what Jones has used for the last 18 months they were a team that were much less intense out of possession but they had a very strong structure they were very hard to play through uh, the wing backs were their best attacking players and they made the most of them Cadden and and um, Wilson their centre midfielders at Forest Green weren't like massively technical, creative types. They didn't create many chances. They didn't score many goals. But as a unit, Adams and Stevenson and Co. Uh, and Hendry, they dominated midfield battles and they they helped the team keep control in and out of possession. Um, the goals from open play, at least, were scored by the strikers, Matt and Stevens and a few by March and not many others chipped in. But they were a net positive team from set pieces as well. Scored plenty, not conceding many. So you start to understand why Luton might have wanted to dig a little bit deeper and liked what they saw when they did so. If you transpose all of that that I just said onto this Luton squad, I think it fits pretty well. Like their strongest areas, in my opinion, are up front with Adebayo, Morris, Cornick, Woodrow, Jerome, and then in centre midfield, where I think they excel, particularly when Clark and Campbell and Lansbury are all fit and starting. The wingbacks are unlikely to have the same sort of attacking output as Wilson and Cadden. Bree is great at right wing back, but he he's, he's he doesn't have the skill advantage that Wilson had in League Two when it came to ball carrying and, and, and setting up chances from the byline. On the left, I'm interested to see what happens with Doughty and Namari Bell um, because Bell certainly doesn't have the crossing ability that Cadden had, which was a big part of that team. And I don't know exactly what Doughty's delivery is like if I'm honest I haven't quite got a clear idea of how good he is at crossing but Doughty has started five of the last seven league games for Luton so maybe he'll make that spot his he's obviously incredibly quick um but yeah in terms of results and, and points I'd be surprised having said all of that I'd be surprised if the points returned from now until the end of the season stayed at the sort of 1.5 1.6 points per game level that Jones has hit for the last well 18 months at least because when you have a scenario where the departing manager is leaving, not because they've been sacked due to poor performances and results, but because they've been poached by a team in the league above, they had a team that was playing more than the sum of its parts for such a long period of time. I think it's a safe assumption that the change, that change is likely to, to compromise the level of performance that they've been achieving. Now, it might be that it's the perfect time, the perfect new man, the perfect change in voice and change in style and training methods and tactics but I think that would be the exception rather than the rule so overall I think good fit good hire for Luton good landing spot for Edwards and at the same time I would say a playoff berth feels less likely to me than it did five weeks ago so as long as there's a bit of patience there and things don't start drastically badly I'll be excited to see where this new marriage can get to George last week on the pod on the Monday pod you got Matt Slater on brilliant of him to join from Qatar to talk about so many different aspects of EFL goings on off the field. I'm really interesting to listen back to that on on my flight, particularly for me, the stuff about Midlands clubs, West Brom, Birmingham and Coventry City. Now, I say it was interesting to listen to. It was, it was tough to listen to. What he said, the concerns that he raised, raised my own personal concerns, basically, I guess. Um, since then, 
and starting with Coventry, more developments and and news from Coventry this morning that made me feel a bit sick, to be honest, a bit sick to my stomach. Yeah, this is troubling. And as ever with um, with these things, I guess we've got to be slightly careful what we say. Um, but yeah, I'll be reading from the BBC Sport website this morning. Coventry City have been issued with an eviction notice by the new owners of the Coventry Building Society Arena, former Newcastle owner Mike Ashley's Fraser's Group, took over the stadium last month after buying its three former former operating companies. They say the Championship Club has no right to continue using the ground. Club officials were informed on Friday they must return the keys and access cards. And a FA Youth Cup game on Saturday was switched to Leamington Town FC. Um, yeah, plenty more online that you can read about this. It is obviously a developing situation. I would be interested in speculating as to the motivation behind this um, from Mike Ashley, but I'm, I'm sure the listeners can understand that it would be fairly foolish of us to do so. So I think all we can say now is that this is another mess for commentary fans that obviously deserve a lot more. Um, I think it probably raises some pretty significant question marks around the, the takeover of Doug King, um, the new Coventry City owner, Um it probably raises some questions about their immediate existence, frankly. Um, so fingers crossed the situation is resolved very soon. Um, and hopefully we can talk about it more in, in the coming weeks. Mm. Next scheduled home fixture is against Swansea on the 17th of December. Uh, in the short term, they need to find somewhere to play their matches. Um, the prospective new owners of Birmingham City that Matt talked about, Paul Richardson and Maxi Lopez, uh, they've withdrawn their offer to buy the club, uh, uh, reported by BBC Radio West Midlands. Uh, they said that in light of the due diligence, we attempted to renegotiate the terms of the original agreements to reflect our understanding of the current business status, but we could not agree revised terms with the current owners. Um, it's a weird one, this, because I'm hugely alarmed by what Matt said about the current owners of Birmingham City and their apparent lack of interest in the club uh, and the issues that they may or may not have um, due to where they are based in moving it, uh, sorry, in selling it and or in funding it if they don't sell it. At the same time, I'm, my gut feeling is that the collapse of this particular takeover deal with Paul Richardson and Maxi Lopez shouldn't necessarily be seen as a bad thing just because a duo that, rocked up in the car park at St Andrews about five or six months ago and said the deal is done, made a lot of noise about it, and then seemingly only at that point started to do due diligence on the football club and then tried to change the terms of the deal based on what they found. I'm, I wouldn't be convinced that those would therefore be the most diligent owners, basically, of a football club. Um, but as Matt said last week and as Dan Ivory writes on his brilliant blog Al Majir covering Birmingham City's off-field goings-on. So the big question on many people's lips now is, is who will fund the club until a new takeover consortium steps forward, especially considering the widely held impression that BSH no longer wish to fund Blues. Dan also wrote the immediate short-term problem for the owners is going to be Maxco, that was the, the, the group that pulled out, wanting their money back from their funding of the club for the last few months. I can't pretend to know the ins and outs of how that's been achieved, but my gut feeling is that the owners aren't going to be quick to hand back money to Maxco, which could turn into a protracted, messy legal situation. Dan finishes by saying, I suspect the club is going to be in for some short-term pain. 
following Maxco pulling out all prim stuff. Um, shall we talk about some actual EFL matches that happened? I think so, yeah. Sneaky one in the championship. Sunderland Millwall. What happened there? Why why were they playing and what happened, George? Sunderland 3 0 winners. <laughs> I don't know where they were playing. So you've dropped me in it there. <laughs> do you know where they were playing? I know that it was something to do with the scheduling that followed the Queen's death, but I don't oh. know anything more than that. Okay. Well that makes sense. Yeah, it was a an interesting game. I previewed it for um for for Betfair for the betting.betfair the column and classic after timing for me I basically went in, went into it planning on tipping um, Ahmad Diallo to score any time and then I looked you know I spent 45 minutes or so looking at both teams and I came away from it thinking hold on a second here this is quite alarming where Sunderland's recent defensive record was was very poor um, looking at early even games they'd won such as the 1-0 no sorry even some of the games they won, then looking at games such as the 1-0 defeat against Cardiff, um, pretty consistently they were conceding so many chances. And then I had a look at Millwall, who were posting mad numbers from an attacking standpoint going forward in every game. So I kind of scaled it back and, and put up Millwall to win. And the first half went exactly kind of as I expected, where Millwall were the better sides. Um, they, had, they created plenty of chances. Zion Fleming missed probably the best of the bunch where um, Patterson kind of inexplicably rolled it out, just kicked it out straight to his feet and he rolled the ball wide. But at half time, Sunderland fans were, were not happy with what they were seeing and understandably so because they were the, the worst team off at home. But the second half was a completely different story led by Alex Pritchard, who was man of the match by Miles. Um, Ahmad Diallo typically scoring the first goal uh, and prodding it home from, from a couple of yards out, Pritchard getting the second and yeah, they were very, very good value for their win. The second half performance was 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 completely different. Um, credit to Tony Mowbray for for turning that around um, in a game where, without question, they were they were deserving of, of not only the win but the the three nil goal line, the score line. Sorry that uh, that came. With it. Yeah, only their third win at home in the league this season, Sunderland, which I think is interesting, in part because it it often becomes a sort of common assumption that a team with a, a, a huge fan base and a stadium the size of Sunderland's will equate to the stadium alike being a fortress, a place where they pick up a lot of points because away teams are intimidated and the home team are buoyed by the support and therefore play better. You know, that's a kind of accepted conception in, in English football, mm. but it hasn't been the case for Sunderland. Uh, it's a way where they've picked up more points. So maybe this could breathe some more confident displays from the team in front of their own fans if they if they can and if they can maintain that decent level away from home uh, then there's absolutely no reason why they shouldn't stick around where they've where they've got to and and, and make a little play for the playoffs they're, they're very very exciting to watch I'm, i must say one of my favorite teams to watch attack in the championship when they cut loose um, as they did at times in that second half of Pritchard and Sims and Diallo and Clark, really fun team to watch. And perhaps no surprise, um, Tony Mowbray's teams have, have almost always been, you know, uh, at least had quite a lot of attacking intent. So that's good stuff. Uh, that was the only game in the champ uh, in league one, six draws out of 12, George quick pod, this six draws out of 12, five of them were one all draws. And a nil-nil as well. So we'll talk about the ones that didn't end in a draw to start with. Of the top nine teams at the start of the weekend, only one of them won, and that was Barnsley, who beat Peterborough. I don't want to start there because I want to do a good cop. Good cop is Anis Mameti. 
Can I quickly say that was one of the worst segues I've ever heard in my whole life in podcasting. So that was good. <laughs> it, it just it comes down to bad um, formatting of my Google Doc running right. order. I had my stat about only one of the top nine winning, and only then realised <laughs> that I didn't want to talk about them first. Anyway, right. just a bit rusty, a bit rusty. Hmm. South African wine in the tank still. Um, good cop, yeah. Anis Mametti for a star performance live on the telly for Wickham in their 2-0 win against Portsmouth. The sort of exciting attacking display that we might have come to expect from him, but many people who would have found themselves watching Wickham Portsmouth live on the box might not have known about. Uh, his background is really interesting. The way that Wickham signed him for their sort of newly constructed B team, as it was at the time, with the idea that a B team would be better for them than a youth team to try and pick up guys who, who maybe weren't necessarily under 18s, but in that little age group above that, between 18 and, and under 23, uh, and just to try and give them, or to try and see if the opportunity to train within a professional club would help them kick on, give them confidence, and, and see if they can supplement their first team with B-team players, it's not a way that a lot of teams approach things in the EFL. Brentford sort of most famously, I guess, taking that approach. Huddersfield have a similar approach as well. And and you have to say, well, I don't know how, how you measure the success of a B-team. One player promoted into the first team each season, like a solid first team player, seems like a fair assumption. And in Mometi, they have now a star player who's come from this uh, avenue. And they have Chris Farino who didn't play in this game, but has been a good player for them at centre-back as well, uh, as another who's really established himself in the first team. So um, firstly, yeah, interesting the way that Wickham have approached things. And I'd say their their B-team approach has worked fairly well for what they, they they want to do with it. But this is about Anis Mameti, because when he plays at this level, he's very, very exciting to watch. One of the most exciting attack players in League One. And I found myself sort of cooing at, at, at some of the big moments here. His, his brilliant strike to open the scoring early on in the game seems to have a real knack for scoring early goals I think almost all of his goals this season have come in the first 20 minutes of games so he he, he starts strongly when when defences are feeling a little rusty Mometi's sharp and and he can be too good for them because it, it wasn't actually the, the great strike that he scored that made me excited it was his assist for McCleary for the second goal um, showing that thing that people have started to call attacking gravity now when we talk Ooh. about when we talk about attacking gravity, we think of which player who is probably combined our favourite player in the world? Pereze. Jack Grealish. Ah, nice. Okay. If but, you said, oh, if you said your, I'd have got it. But Pereze is absolutely in the attacking gravity conversation as well. These are the players who, with their skill and ball-carrying ability and guile and those little pauses where, where defenders might be tempted to stick a foot in but are probably advised not to, these are the players that draw defenders to them. That's the gravity aspect. And the great thing about attacking gravity is not necessarily what the player then does himself. It's when the player releases the ball and it turns out that because they've sucked over defenders to them, there's more space for their teammates. That's what we saw here. Uh, the second goal, Mameti picking the ball up in line with the edge of the centre circle, carrying it 30, 35 yards at the point of squaring it to McCleary. There are three Portsmouth defenders within a metre of Mameti and none of them are either good enough or brave enough to make a stab at nicking the ball off him because he's got such quick feet, so technical. Uh, and given that there are three defenders with him, that means there are only three defending the middle. Uh, too much space to defend, and the cutback fell straight to McCleary for 2 0. So uh, overall, I thought, Georgia, an, an impressive performance from Wickham. Good, solid home win for them, especially without Sam Vokes. 
yeah, I, I think that's spot on, really. Um, after a disappointing start to the season, they, they look back to then their usual selves, where um, especially at home, they're always capable of, of creating chances and they look much more solid at the back. I think they're probably the you know the key thing to take away from this is is Pompey's con- continual struggles. Um, having made a pretty solid start to the season, it does feel like they are just unable to really get that spark at the moment. Um, they're fairly predictable. They don't create a great deal. They're not solid enough to to shut up shop, and it's it's hard to really put your finger on on why. Um, you know, this is certainly Danny Cowley's team now. Um, so if yeah, I mean, it's 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 looking fairly bleak for them. It, it feels like in League One, um, there there are a lot of teams who had big aspirations at the, at the beginning of the season, whose fans are currently not particularly happy with what's going on. You know, Portsmouth being one, Peterborough another, Oxford another. Um, mm. Why that is, I'm not entirely sure, but there does feel like a just a real lack of of kind of creative nous and, and attacking intent. Absolutely. It's only nine points from their last 10 games in the league, less than a point per game in that time. It's not good enough. Uh, five of those 10 have been draws, three defeats and just the one win. Uh, they've had a, a very tough fixture list in that time. It should be uh, mentioned, but tough fixture list is just what happens in League One because you have mm. a chunk of teams that we consider to be very strong. And then another chunk of teams, some of whom have proved themselves to be much stronger than we thought. The likes of Port Vale and Exeter City and uh, other sides like that are proving that it's certainly not a case of there being 12 haves and 12 have-nots. It's, it's not played out that way at all, even if the top of the table looks you know, about right for what we thought to start the season. I don't think things are critical just yet for Pompey, um, but when they don't look good, they, they are pretty grim, aren't they? As you, have you alluded to, they look quite slow, out of ideas, a bit ponderous not a particularly clear attacking strategy. And that, that's probably something that's been leveled at Danny Cowley all through his career is, is mm. his team's at their best. You'd use words like organization, game management, um, excellent on the margins, just, just drilled within an inch of their life and, and winning tight games. Very rarely cutting loose, slicing through the opposition, tons of really exciting attacking play. So um, work to be done. That's absolutely for sure. Do you have a bad cop from the League One weekend? Something you just saw and you just hated? <laughs> um, <laughs> Lucas Bergstrom. I mean, it's a bit harsh and I don't want to have a go at keepers. Um, go on. And I haven't really prepared anything. Um, but it means we can talk about the game that you nearly spoke about a second ago <laughs> um, between between Peterborough and, and Barnsley. Uh, Barnsley won the game 2-1, um, one of my favourite goals. It was actually, given how few goals there were in the EFL this weekend, there are a lot of good goals. Mm. I think the combined yardage for goals in League 1 and League 2 would have been higher than, than usual. Um, <laughs> yeah. Average a- average yardage. Um, but yeah, Luke O'Connell scored one of my favourite of of the weekend and probably of, of recent weeks with a really sweetly struck um, bouncing ball where it was a proper kind of a Zidane where he uh, steadied himself and had that, you know, that photo moment of him poised to shoot before um, hitting a really sweet strike, which one, you know, was always about a foot off the ground nesting in the bottom right-hand corner. Um, a good goal from Taylor got them back into the game, Peterborough, but Bergstrom was beaten by a pot shot from Adam Phillips, who's I think now scored five and six. Um, hitting form at the right time but yeah realistically that is a save that you need your keeper to make it was mm. basically straight at him a bit of a daisy cutter he's let it through his, his body and into the back of the net 
And, you know, Peterborough's form isn't great. They've been so light on their home form this season. So to concede that goal um, up against the team who are also going to be um, trying to finish in the playoff positions, if not better, um, it's, it's a bad error. So apologies to him because he's a young keeper and I don't like digging him up. But if I'm honest, I forgot to do a bad cop. So bad luck, Bergie. It's you. <laughs> a good start for my not sure Peterborough are actually particularly good stance from a couple of weeks mm. ago. I don't know if you would have uh, thought about that, but I certainly did when I saw this result. <laughs> Only three shots on target in the whole game here. They all went in. Um, as for Luke O'Connell, A, loved the goal. B, loved your description of it. C, a couple of weeks ago, I spoke about Sandro Di Michele and Swindon and their recruitment mm. approach in the summer. It might seem like a strange thing to bring up when talking about a Barnsley midfielder. But one of the quotes that I read out from Sandro was that they, they were looking for players that in his words, they considered undervalued and or underdeveloped young players. And ever since I spoke about that, I've been thinking about, for EFL clubs in League One and League Two in particular, how you work out whether a player is undervalued, underdeveloped, those sorts of things. I think it's a really interesting concept. And that phrase, undervalued, underdeveloped, I think Connell fits that bill. And I think Barnsley, probably given their methods of, of recruitment, are pretty good at finding these players as well with their database approach. He, he played mm. ten, he played ten league games for Bolton Connor when he was seventeen. It was when they were going through that horrible spell where they embargoes and points deductions and relegations. They didn't have a a, a proper squad. But even so, when he played, he stood out. He he didn't look like he was just chucked in for the sake of it, like a couple of the other youngsters, some of whom aren't even professional players anymore from that time. Connell absolutely is and was and stood out and then got bought by Celtic on a four-year deal, aged 18. Now, he never played a senior game for Celtic and he left three years later. And you might think, well, he's obviously not as good as they thought and they just picked him up because they saw he'd played some games for Bolton and they wanted to have a punt. Well, it's pretty hard to play games for Celtic and I don't think the fact that he didn't means he's not a good player. If you looked at his two loan spells at Queen's Park FC, back-to-back promotions and O'Connell playing an important role in both, albeit Scottish League 1 and Scottish League 2, not considered to be of the same level of, of, of the English Leagues 1 and 2, but only 21. And you just think, or you can see why they thought, let's let's have a go and see if we can kind of coax out some of that talent, which has been maybe a little bit squashed over the last few years. Um, and here we are. Now he's starting in the centre of the park for Barnsley. He's 21. He's quality on the ball. He's got a brilliant left foot. And you just straight away what is he, six months after signing, you just look at that and think, yes, smart, undervalued, mm. underdeveloped player. You've bought him. The manager's given him a good role and now he's worth, who knows, but a lot more than he was when you signed him for a free. Um, very intriguing for me right now, Barnsley. They've, they've played all of the current top seven away from home. So you could make an argument, albeit a pretty basic one, a contextless one, that they might have played their seven toughest fixtures of the season already in a sense. And they haven't played any of the top seven at home. So uh, they're, they're going to have a big say in things, I think, Barnsley. The, the top three are still eight, nine, ten points away from them. But outside of those guys, we're, you know, we're looking to see who the likely playoff locks are out of Barnsley, Bolton, Peterborough, Derby, Portsmouth, Wickham. Uh, and at the moment, they, they look in the best shape. And Duff seems to have put his Duff stamp on things, which is always a good stamp to have a couple of impressive away wins George why not talk about Argyle nil Port Vale 2 I heard you talk about this game on the betting show albeit when picking an anytime goal scorer they didn't mm. even play but what you said about Argyle then I saw the result I was like oh yeah clever 
Yeah, it's frustrating, really. Probably should have just tipped up Port Vale to win, shouldn't I, rather than trying to be clever um, with Ellis Harrison, who wasn't even in the squad injury, I'm assuming. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's something that we often have to do, I think, um, is kind of check yourself a bit when talking about these teams and check your bias. Now, I'm I'm obviously not a Plymouth Argyle fan. I'm a fan of another club in League One. Um, but, you know, we called Argyle being good quite early, not embarrassed as it would financially benefit me if Argyle continued to be top of the league come the end of the, the season off the back of that. But if you are going to pay attention to data and you're going to be someone who gives credence to underlying numbers and the rest of it, then there is it comes a time where you have to look at Plymouth Argyle's recent performances and say, yeah, I mean, Stephen Schumacher is doing an incredible job. They're a very good team. But this probably isn't sustainable. And that kind of came before the weekend where, um, you know, Mike Cooper is clearly, in my view, the best keeper in League One. Um, I know Ipswich fans love uh, Christian Walton and he is very good. But, um, you know, League One fans all arguing about that their keeper is the best keeper in League One is, is pretty tiresome. I think Cooper's shown over the last... Um, two seasons that he is probably a Premier League keeper in waiting um, who will get a move fairly soon Soon, I'm sure of it and he's played a massive part in that and you know maybe luck has as well and when you look at the the two goals um, that Port Vale scored one Cooper might feel he should have done better one was a ricochet that you know it's one of those ones that does eventually go in and it feels like probably haven't gone in that often against Argyle um, credit to Port Vale you know this isn't all about uh, Plymouth Argyle Port Vale have bounced back Impressively, from that 4 0 defeat uh, at Oxford a couple of weeks ago, mm. uh, Daryl Clark continues to do an incredible job there. There's no denying that. Um, but I would say that Plymouth Argyle are in that territory now in my mind where if they don't improve pretty sharpish, I think their automatic promotion tilt um, is probably going to, to, to stop looking likely. Um, hopefully, we don't see a repeat of last season. That isn't to say that I think it will happen. You know, I think there are enough quality players in the squad. I think at times early in the season, they look the real deal. You know, it's a case of needing to return to that level of performance in order to to solidify that mm. um, rather than me just sitting here saying I think they're rubbish because they quite clearly aren't. The first time in the league this season that they have not won a match at home park uh, and credit to, to Port Vale who just continue to be very impressive. Uh, a lovely return in their last 12 games of, of 20 points, six wins in their last 12, just motoring along really nicely, not the only side to be doing so. Um, you could say that Cheltenham are looking pretty good at the moment. They went to Charlton and won 1-0, uh, and it, it's a very eye-catching away win and a deserved one, you'd say, based on, on the way the game played out, even if they had the Charlton goalkeeper Craig McGillivray to thank for their winning goal uh, for Alfie May. McGillivray rushing out to deal with a bouncing ball, misjudging the bounce and and sort of running out of his goal, only heading it straight to May, who lobbed it over him and in. For, for Cheltenham, this is three wins in their last five. The other two were draws. So unbeaten in five with 11 points in that time. They've only conceded a single goal, just the one in their last five games. And I think this reflects very well on, on Wade Elliott. Um, you know, you look at their starting 11 and without meaning to be rude, I think there are a few players in there, maybe three or four in this starting 11, your average League One fan of another club would would possibly have never even heard of or certainly certainly wouldn't know very much about. But 
in the last few weeks, they've been performing really, really well for Elliot. And uh, this in his first season as a senior manager, yeah, reflects very well on him, given how difficult it is at this level for a team with the budget of Cheltenham. Eight points above the drop zone with a game in hand as well. Much better than I expected uh, at this stage. They're not particularly good going forward, but they are significantly better defensively than six teams. Uh, and that's probably all that they'll need to be to, to survive ultimately. As for Charlton, bit of a mess at the moment, I think it's fair to say. Garner's not been helped by injuries and suspensions, but the team here was quite shocking, I thought. In the back three, they had a 17-year-old, Zach Mitchell, brother of, of Millwall's Billy Mitchell. They had Luca Ness, a 20-year-old, who they recalled from a loan at Torquay, where I think he was doing pretty well. They recalled him to, to chuck him straight in. That means that Ryan Innes was the senior centre-back, uh, which is a phrase that will always give me the heebie-jeebies because I personally don't think Innes has ever been a consistent, reliable defender at this level. Albeit, I think his his size makes him appealing in certain ways. He almost gifted a goal to Cheltenham in the first half to Lundulu, who hit the bar. And then no recognised striker. Charlton are in a position where Leeburn is injured, Stockley is suspended due to an off-the-ball incident, and Chuxanike is unable to start games. Possibly the only professional football player I can remember that's basically not allowed to start football matches because his body can't handle it. It's no wonder that they had no attacking threat with no recognised striker on the pitch. They conceded a shambles of a goal. And again, we're talking about Charlton. Like it seems we have almost every season, apart from one promotion season, being a little undermined by things off the field and that bleeding onto the on-pitch stuff. And such is the vibe there at the moment. I found this defeat completely unsurprising. And it's uh, pretty concerning. I know you... You spoke about about them on the betting show and expressed similar concerns. I think the only thing on Charlton is there was um, is it Peter Varney, a former director, I think. Mm-hmm. He's now a, a, he works for the Millwall Community Trust, but is a, a Charlton fan and, and has worked at the club before. Uh, tweeted on November the 30th, if you care about Charlton, even if you feel disillusioned at, at pleasant, please buy your ticket for the Brighton Cup game and come with a mindset to create a passionate atmosphere as it is very important to showcase the club on that night, which would suggest in my mind, not with any knowledge of anything else, that um, yeah, maybe there are prospective buyers in the midst, um, which could mean that the current era might be drawing to a close, which I think will be welcome news. Although for Charlton fans, I think they're getting sick of false dawns. Um, and there's probably an, an assumption that every dawn is false until they see anything otherwise. Mm. Forest Green beat Cambridge 2-1. Uh, Forest Green off the bottom now. In fact, they leapt three places off the bottom. Uh, they're now just three points back from Cambridge, who are sitting just above that dotted line in pretty miserable Sitting, form. falling. Falling. Dropping like a stone. Yeah. Dropping like a stone. They cannot buy a win at the moment. And or a point for that matter, it's kind of summed up by drawing level with one minute left and then conceding a penalty to lose the game within a, a matter of minutes. D- Dylan McGeoch, the name I wanted to bring up. I saw that he signed for Forest Green in the last week or two. Um, midfield player, formerly of Sunderland, you might remember, done a lot north of the border in Scottish football. I think could be a very good signing for them. Um, certainly think could add a bit of composure, maybe a bit of creative quality uh, in midfield that they've been lacking um, and showed it with, with an assist for March for the first goal. Uh, a late Connor Wickham penalty, which squirmed under the goalkeeper, got Forest Green three much needed points. Uh, and then Shrews 2, Lincoln 1. It was 2-1. I thought it was 2-0. Um, yes. No, it was. Yeah, I'm just very rusty. 2-0. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was the, always the way with Shrewsbury. Um, 
if Tom Bayliss and Jordan Shipley play, play well, they they win. If they don't, they normally draw nil nil or lose to nil. Um, Bayliss with the the second goal, Leahy with a penalty. Um, it was a, a, a big result for them after, you know, there was a run of fixtures they had over the last six or seven games where having had a, a really favourable start to the season in terms of the, the opposition, they were always going to find out if they were genuine playoff contenders in that stretch. The answer was a pretty resounding no. Um, they didn't win any of them and um, their, their place in the league table reflected that. But home wins against fellow mid-table sides will be enough to to keep them in the, in the hunt if those teams above them continue to fall. So... Mm a really important return to, to winning ways for Shrews uh, against the Lincoln side have been a decent form themselves. Ollie from Salopcast, who's on the NTT20 squad, uh, writing the stat that no Shrewsbury Town striker has scored since September. Um, and yet <laughs> they're still chugging along pretty nicely. Loads of draws, Ipswich one all with Fleetwood, uh, seemingly nothing Ipswich love more at the moment than dominating the ball, dominating the shot count and not winning. Uh, that's happened in four of their last seven games. Uh, Kean Hayes of Fleetwood with a 96th minute deflected long range looper. Uh, I tend to fall on the side of not still not being that worried about Ipswich and thinking that even in failing to win these games, it makes me kind of more bullish that they'll just maintain a, a level of of points return that will keep them in the top two. But it must be very frustrating. Uh, Bolton Bristol Rovers won all early goal for Coburn, late goal for Dion Charles. Bolton, of course refuse to play football until they have to come back from behind with 10 minutes to go, but they then turn into the best team in the league. Um, uh, what else? MK one Burton one was a, a late equalizer for MK Morecambe one X to one. I think X to probably pushing, trying to blow the door down in the second half, but didn't quite get there. And then Aki one Oxford one bit of a weird one, George, because Oxford scored a goal that no one saw and then conceded <laughs> an absolute thronker. Yeah. I, I watched the game on iFollow. And um, the cameraman, I can only assume, was on his phone more often than me and you for the 90 minutes, um, where it wasn't just the goal. So many times during the game, even in the first half, suddenly you just, you know, he just wouldn't follow the ball. So it was interesting when Andy Holt tweeted yesterday being like, I've spoken to the cameraman in question, and it's basically because Oxford took the throw in 15 yards further ahead than they should have done. And so he just had his camera on the area of the touchline where he should have taken the throw in from. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, fair enough. He's got to um, say something to save his job. But uh, yeah, the the Oxford analysts have sh- since shared the goal, um, which was, uh, yeah, tapping for James Henry and then a really good goal for Ethan Hamilton for the, for the point. He's got an absolute sledgehammer of a left foot um, and he took fly, let, let fly from 40 yards uh, into the bottom corner. And, um, you know, I, in my mind, even if it's Ethan Hamilton and his ability to do that, if you're 1-0 up with a few minutes to go, you're always going to be happy to let an opposition player shoot from 40 yards. But probably once in every 200 times, it's going to go in. And that's mm. what happened on Saturday. If in doubt, the cameraman has followed the, the classic case of if in doubt, blame the ref. Something that yeah. managers, fans, players, and now cameramen have been doing for generations. Uh, in all note, almost forgot to say that Derby drew nil-nil with Sheffield Wednesday and that was a match that happened also in League One uh, in, in League Two tons of interesting results uh, my good cop could be one of like eight teams uh, loads of impressive performances and wins I'm going to go with Stockport County beating Hartlepool 5-0 it's probably a case to argue that that their performance uh, sorry that their opposition here in Hartlepool are 
you know, no better than the bottom half National League teams that Stockport were putting away pretty comfortably for, for the majority of last season in winning promotion. But they have really turned it on since the start of October. Um, we're starting to see a Stockport team that we'd been that we'd heard whispers about from the National League, a Stockport team that were favourites to win the league uh, before the season and mm. now playing in a manner that, that makes that make more sense, if that if that works. Um, five wins in their last seven, scoring tonnes of goals. Um, and I've spoken before about that like, every now and again, when I just look at a team and the way that they play, the setup, the tactics, everything just makes sense and everything just kind of falls into place. And I think that's what's happening here with Wooten and Madden playing brilliantly up front. Uh, Wooten with two here, Madden with one. Um, the, the the attacking central midfielders, Hippolyte, uh, has made a big impact in the last few weeks. But Will Collar, probably the standout for me, not a player that I knew anything about before this season. I, I, I don't mind admitting Collar, uh, but someone who looks incredibly impressive, just like covers ground pretty well. He's quite, he's quite physical, but can score and create goals and did both here. Um, and uh, I noticed that he was a former Brighton Hove Albion youngster and, and sort of left there to go to Hamilton in Scotland, a couple of seasons there, and, uh, and now absolutely thriving for for Stockport. So Collar will be a name that we talk about quite a lot, I think, from now on. 5-0 winners, Stockport, uh, and doing very, very well. Uh, did you have a bad cop in League Two? Is there, is there any of the teams that lost where you were like, you're just, you're a shambles here? I like how you're kind of giving me the definition of bad cop as if in the two weeks I'm, I may have forgotten. Um, but it's more trying yeah, to give I mean, you time, mate, because you just admitted that you didn't have one for League One. So I thought I'd let you buy some time and buy yourself a bad cop. Yeah, right, Rochdale, bad cop. Mm-hmm. I mean, losing losing 4-1 at home to, to Harrogate isn't much good, is it? So there no. you go. Uh, <laughs> um, it's, and from 1-0 up as well. Exactly. Um, kind of similarities, I guess, between Rochdale and um, Hartlepool, where both... Club has made a change and and management initial signs seem to be that that change was a good change. And then inevitably they've reverted back to uh, where they were previously. Um, I didn't see the Rochdale one coming. I think the Hartlepool one was was far more likely. Um, But Harrogate have certainly a team who, who, you know, retained the faith with the managers, sorry, with the owner's son and manager, Simon Weaver, Weaver being um, benefited for it now. It does feel like Harrogate, Weaver and Harrogate went into the season intent on changing that very poor defensive record from from last season and in doing so weren't really able to have the attacking threat that they carried previously and in the last couple of weeks I've seen them tear that up and go back to what they were last season total mayhem um, scoring as many goals as possible <laughs> and hoping that gets you enough points to stay up and, and at the moment it looks like it probably will first time in ages I've watched the Harrogate highlights and thought oh yeah this is the Harrogate that I, was, I really enjoyed watching from, from last season and the one before back-to-back wins for them uh, they've got a nice five-point cushion now above the drop zone f- and put four points between themselves and Rochdale here as well. So significant win. Bit of a weird team in, in that they've won only six games in the league, but five of them by two goals or more. So if you catch Harrogate on a good day, you get thumped. Uh, but the good days have been few and far between this season. Stevenage beat Barrow 5-0. I, I put on the highlights and and you know pulled up all the stats pages expecting to see sort of Stevenage domination. It wasn't necessarily how I then saw it. In the first half, I think Barrow could probably argue that they just about the better side kind of edged it uh, in terms of working a few openings, especially from set pieces. They had a few efforts. Stevenage barely had a shot. It just so happened that one of them was a worldie from Reeves from 30 yards, um, one of the high yardage goals that you mentioned earlier. And then Mm. another theme from the weekend was keepers running out and messing up. And this happened here as well. 
The barrow. I thought about that being the bad cop, but I thought I can't. I can't upset the keepers' union twice. I don't know if who you would choose between the barrow keeper and the Swindon keeper. League League two keepers. And the Charlton keeper as well in League One. So, uh, yes, uh, Stephen is given a helping hand, I think it's fair to say, uh, by Barrow. Bit of a freak result, I'm going to say. Eight shots for Stevenage, five goals. But it it doesn't really matter if it was a freak result. It kind of adds to this imposing shadow that Steve Evans' team are casting at the moment. Okay, right at the top of League Two are Leighton Orient, a team that I said two weeks ago are almost certainly going up. And I got told off for doing so. What about after the 3-0 win against Bradford, George? If they go up, you saying they are almost certainly up doesn't doesn't vindicate it, mm-hmm. right? It was an inability to understand basic chance. <laughs> um, yeah, 3-0 win over Bradford and impressively done as well. Um, Bradford aside, who away from home, I mean, they're one of the best teams away from home in, in the whole of League Two. Um, very, very solid, you would say. And uh, Leighton Orient were able to, to breeze past them pretty comfortably. Um, but I, you know, it's my the team I live closest to is Leighton Orient. But I handed over the reins for this one. My 11-year-old nephew, Dash Geef, uh was at the game um, with some friends. So I said to him afterwards, can you send me a voice note match report? And he sent me this. Easy win. Easy win. Now, I'm sure you can probably agree that wasn't exactly what I was after when I was for a match report. Um, wasn't really the uh, hard-hitting analysis that I know he's capable of. So I was like, can you give us a, a bit of a better one? So this is what he came up with the second time around. There were nervy moments, but Leighton Orient were comfortable. And Oggy and Beckles at their backs sh- stood out. And I reckon they could play at a much higher level. <laughs> Magic. Magic. There you go. I didn't say anything to him about Shadrach. And yeah, OG. You know, yeah. So he's he can spot a player. Sadly, he's an Arsenal fan. And I watched the uh I watched the Wales, England Wales game with him on Tuesday night last week. And he spent the whole time moaning about Jordan Henderson. Um so I WhatsApped him when Hendo scored last night. Didn't get a reply. So there you go. Bad luck to <laughs> He sounds like he shares a lot of your traits, to be honest, like strong opinions on players, either loving or or thinking that they're overrated, then not dealing very well with people pointing out when you're wrong, you know, (laughs) great, great match analysis as well. I think there's probably space in the NTT 20 umbrella for a Monday pod, which is just Dash doing 15 seconds on each game, the express version. I can promise he's listening to this right now. So (laughs) and then uh, I'm going to get a message asking um, if he can start doing that. He's a Premier League fan. You know, he's looking forward to Oxford Arsenal though in the cup on uh, on Monday the 9th of Jan. The NTT20 Academy is looking uh, very impressive at the moment. Hey, you know who else is looking very impressive at the moment? Here we go. The segues are coming back. I'm feeling it now. Uh, Doncaster nil, Walsall 2. George, Walsall, mm. since the beginning of the month of our Lord October, they have picked up the joint most points in the league in that time. 21, to be precise from their last 10 games, reaping some of that early season sowing. And they did so here against Donny. Yeah, I mean, they are looking, we said the same about Carl and Tramier recently, they're the latest team to kind of emerge out of mid-table mediocrity to be like, hold on, this team is putting together the kind of run that could see them um, embed themselves in the top seven, not at the end of the season, but fairly soon. Um, really impressive. Mike Flynn has, continues to do a, a really good job there. So happy that he was given a bit of time at the beginning of the season after a disappointing start to the campaign. Tom Knowles, 
as I've said before, one of my favourite players in League Two to watch. Mm. Um, he is someone who I'm sure will be on the radar of plenty of League One clubs in January. Um, they're just a, a really well-oiled um, team. They um, create chances regularly in every game. They're solid defensively. And yeah, I think they are uh, you know, probably off the back of this ridiculous run. There's going to be a bit of a blip coming soon, but they certainly look at the moment to be very, very capable of, of putting it amongst them. I mean, there are genuinely probably 12 or 13 clubs I think who at this stage in mid-December have proper promotion aspirations in League Two, which is which is mad. Quite a lot of good teams in League Two, aren't there, mm. George? Yes. We've talked about Walsall, they're tenth. Talked about Stockport, they're twelfth, and we're bigging them up. Well, what about Wimbledon? They're eleventh. Beat Grimsby one 0 Flying. Unbeaten in seven in the league. Four clean sheets in a row. Thirteen points from five. And this is a team, lest we forget, a club. I should say, I didn't win for 27 league games to finish last season. Has JJ turned the tanker around? Definitely. I mean, they were good value for this. Grimsby are, you know, they're going through their own difficult spell at the moment, but their away form has been so impressive. This wasn't just a, you know, a a tight 1-0 win for Wimbledon. They were the better team by miles. Um, I think their performances are getting better basically every week. Um, whether it's, you know, they've got plenty of players who are now providing that attacking threat. I think Asal's obviously been the man in form, but Chislett with another goal um, to win this one. Davison leading the line incredibly well with all that energy and physicality up front. Um, Magoma and Woodyard are a, a decent midfield too as well. It's it's aggressively solid, I would say, which is what you need in, in League Two. Delighted for, for Jacko that he was, you know, similar to Flynn. You know, after a disappointing start to the season, there were no knee-jerk reactions. He is someone who doesn't have the managerial experience of Flynn so it's fair to think that he will be learning as he goes and I think we're seeing the fruits of of, of those um, of those learnings he's taking because they are improving every single week as he gets to grips with the squad that he's got and I'm sure they'll go again in, in January to try and bring in the players needed to to improve even further so yeah put them in that in that mix as well. Who else is looking good? Well Newport County going well under Graham Coughlin. Uh, they beat Crew 2-1 uh, at the Cornflake Stadium. Um, Lachlan Brook put crew ahead with a screamer, but Newport are a much better team under Graham Coughlin as they were before. And they're a much better team than crew um, from basically all evidence over the last month or two. And they wrestled back control. Uh, first Cameron Norman and then Ofrande Zanzala turning it around and winning the game for Newport. Another team to to watch, to track, another impressive League Two side at the moment. Can't really say the same for crew. Uh, they have given the managerial job full-time to Lee Bell. Uh, Lee Bell was already involved at the club on the coaching staff. Uh, He stepped in when Alex Morris stepped down. He's been given the job full-time. And unfortunately for Lee Bell, the mere fact of this being another internal promotion has fueled some fire within the fan base. And I I can understand it. In particular, the fact that and I've taken a lot of this from some information provided on the NTT20 squad, so I should thank Tim for, for sharing this information as I was away. The, the board at Crew advertised the job to external candidates. They wrote a whole thing on their website saying, please, we want applications for our role of first team manager. Presumably on, on the back of criticism that they didn't do that last time when they appointed Alex Morris. So they did that on the 22nd of November, and they said the deadline for applications was the 25th of November. They appointed Lee Bell on the 30th of November and announced it the next morning on the 1st of December. So it was made public that they got 58 applications and shortlisted 12. Didn't go into much more detail there. So 
as as has been raised on the squad in five days you've you've gone through 58 candidates shortlisted 12 conducted interviews presumably played Barnsley away in the cup reviewed and followed up got some clarifications that you needed from the interviews and then come to a unanimous decision that none of them need to be seen again and Lee Bell's the best man for the job all in the case all in the space of four or five days you, you can see why from the outside it leads to a bit of head scratching but Lee Bell's a new manager and he really needs to get a grip on this team because they're not playing very well at the moment uh, George Crawley two Swindon nil new manager in League Two this definitely gave me a yelp when you messaged me about it <laughs> yes Matthew Etherington and Simon Davis so I was waiting for you to say it two players who came through together at Peterborough, um, we're wonder kids both in the real and the um, virtual world with fans of Championship Manager 9900 knowing that whenever you took over any team, the first thing you did was snap up these two starlets. Mm-hmm. Um, they had differing careers, it's fair to say. You know, both got big moves to big clubs, Tottenham. Um, Simon Davis, clearly the one who, who went on to better things in terms of his, his playing career. Etherington never really hit the heights that were expected of him. Um, but they've been working together at Peterborough in the academy. Um, you know, we have no idea. I, I credit to to Crawley for kind of sticking to their guns and, and going after an academy coach again after the Kevin Betsy um, appointment didn't work. It is ridiculous. One of my many, many pet peeves in football is how people will say like, oh, it's just another Kevin Betsy, just because they've both worked for in academies mm-hmm. before. Um, it's ridiculous because every manager is very different and um you know they obviously impressed in the recruitment process um we'll have to wait and see what they do what the style of play is going to be I, I don't think they'll be naive enough to try and implement an, a ridiculously uh possession-based style again especially after the the way that the fans didn't like it the first time around with betsy um and they got off to a good start with a 2-0 win over over swindon um i always think that kevin betsy must wa- watch crawley highlights now and just wonder where all this nice variance was when he was there because um, the goals were were fairly scrappy um, but um, it does feel like at the moment things are going Crawley's way Um, so disappointing I guess for Lewis Young not to get the job I'm sure he felt feels like he did enough to do so turns out I was um, I don't know if I was right when I said that his chance of getting the job was Trace but um, he couldn't have done much more to get it and he ended up not getting it so uh, yeah, we'll we'll see what happens at Crawley. Um, I still think it's a project to follow with um, some pretty smart people behind the scenes and some significant cash. Um, I think we'll probably see them being one of the um, most active teams in January, mm. I'd have thought. Um, but excited to see how they get on. I don't like talking about Gillingham because they make me sad. Uh, they lost 3-0 to Salford. The funny thing about Gillingham is sometimes at 0-0 for 45 minutes, they look okay. They look competitive, but it's alarming the extent to which that then fades into distant memory and they just lose matches in the second half. Like there wasn't that much in this game until in the second half, Vassell headed in a set piece. Then Watson scored a deflected long shot and Callum Hendry scored a worldie. So it wasn't like Salford sliced Jill's open. But when you are almost incapable of creating any sort of decent shooting opportunity... And when on top of that, you are going through one of the worst like finishing spells I've ever seen from a <laughs> from an EFL team, you mm. don't score goals and therefore it doesn't take very much for you to lose football matches. Um, they've failed to score in 14 of their 20 league games. 70% of their league games, they haven't scored a goal, um, which is ridiculous. And, and Salford really needed this. It was a good time for them to play, Jills, um, and a great 
could be a big moment for Callum Hendry because we've spoken about how as a striker for Salford this season, he's been doing loads of really good stuff. Um, he is incredibly um, uh, fit and has good speed and stamina and he chases balls and he presses really well. He's a monster out of possession. He's all right in terms of hold up. He can set up chances for his teammates. He can carry the ball quite well, but he has been one of the most one of the biggest XG underperformers this season. His finishing has been really poor. And I have this, I have a bit of a weird theory about, I don't know if it goes across all the leagues, but in League Two, it's probably just small sample size. In League Two, some of the biggest underperformers XG-wise are strikers that I think have basically the biggest workload. And therefore, mm. my my sort of logic is that they're too tired to finish well. And knackered. <laughs> so, so like um, Luke Armstrong. Needs work that one, I think. <laughs> Luke Armstrong of Harrogate springs to mind, as does Callum Hendry. But maybe, I guess what I'm saying is, maybe he just needed... You know, the cliche is one off his backside, but maybe he just needed to score a worldie at the end of a game that they'd already won for a bit of confidence and a bit of variance. So keep a lookout for Callum Hendry goals in the next few weeks. Uh, lastly, George, Mansfield 2, Colchester 1. Not their best stags, but winning it late. No, although Colchester scoring another um, high yardage goal, uh, which <laughs> seems to be... <laughs> Uh, trade at the moment um but yeah i think this is a, a big manner of win we often say this it wasn't mansell's best performance by any stretch but they've been disappointing the last couple of weeks um so to score a 92nd minute winner um to kind of come back from one nil down could be the, just the kind of result uh that gets them back believing and, and on the upward path because um yeah to drop points against colchester at home would have been a very very poor result but lucas akins with the all-important goal to get them the three points and keep them in the top seven lucas akins 100th professional goal in his 601st appearance. He's played every position apart from goalkeeper. What a magnificent man and what a professional he has been. Uh, good for them to have Reese Oates back as well, Mansfield. You'd have to think that adds another dimension to their attack. Uh, Carlisle drew one all with Sutton and Northampton nil. Tranmere nil was a match that happened on the banks of the River Neen. Such a treat to be back talking football with George. If there's one good way to soften the blow of returning from the holiday of a lifetime with the person that you love most in the world, it's talking about the EFL with your friend and colleague, George Elliott, for a bit. So there you go. Ah. Um, <laughs> looking forward to the next few weeks, our coverage of the EFL will continue at great pace uh, as the championship returns next weekend, as the busy festive season is busy uh, and we'll be back second half of the week with a betting show. So thank you to Betfair for sponsoring this podcast and thank you to you for listening to it. Goodbye. Go well. <laughs>